Good morning, everybody. Great to have you all here this morning. My name's Dan, and I'm the children's pastor here at Great Oaks Community Church. This morning, I have the pleasure of leading us in our time of studying God's Word. So this is the final Sunday of our Game Changers series. It's been a great series, hasn't it? It's been really neat to listen to Pastor Jake as he's taken us through some of the Hall of Famers in the Old Testament, and he's pointed out to us some of the spiritual, uh, some of the some of the spiritual elements of these people's lives who were used by God to do great things. So today we're going to finish up that study. Before we do, I want to tell you a story. About four years ago, uh, uh, so about four years ago, my son Josiah decided he wanted to learn how to ride a bike. So, so we went and got him a bike, and I took him to the front yard, and I put him on the bike, and I was going to teach him how to ride a bike. But surprisingly, he was pretty adept at riding a bike, and it didn't take him much time, so he was able to ride the bike pretty quickly, thankfully. I was happy about that. And something I noticed, though, as in the coming days and weeks, as we were riding our bikes around, we'd go to the bottom of our street, and then it was time to come back up the street, Josiah would get off his bike, and then he'd start to go up the street, and he'd be pushing his bike up the street. And so, the, so this hill on our street that our that our house sits on top of is not a big hill, right? But to a four-year-old who's just learned how to ride his bicycle, and he's got one speed on his bicycle, it's probably, I think it probably looks like a mountain. So he learned very early on that it's easier to push your bike up the hill than it is to ride your bike up the hill. So I would tell him, Josiah, Josiah, ride your bike up the hill. It's a lot more fun to ride your bike up the hill. You can do this. And he'd look at me and says, no, Dad, I don't think so. I'm going to push my bike up the hill. Josiah, but you don't get it. You're riding a bike. You're supposed to ride your bike up the hill. No, Dad, I don't think so. I'm going to push my bike up the hill. See, I knew what Josiah was thinking. He was thinking, I'm satisfied with the way things are. The way... Things are going for me right now is fine with me. I'm doing things okay. And it's getting me to where I need to be. Things are okay. Friends, do you ever feel that way? Spiritually speaking, do you ever feel like things are fine the way they are? Let's not rock the boat in it. Things are okay the way they are. Spiritually speaking, you ever feel that way? You know what that's called, don't you? That's called complacency thinking, this situation I'm in is just fine. No need to mess things up. So maybe you're thinking, I don't know, Dan. Maybe, maybe some complacency has snuck into my life. Well, to help you understand, or, or I should say to help you identify whether or not it's come into your life, I'm going to give you a very short quiz. It's two questions long. It's not long ago. Think about these questions. The first question is this. Have you learned anything new about God in the past year? Have you learned anything new about God in the past year? Think about that. Okay, so here's the second. Have you tried anything new for God in the past year? Have you tried anything new for God in the past year? If you're sitting there and you're thinking, hmm, boy. I'm not sure. 
Or maybe the answer is no. I hope not, right? But that's a reality that some of us live in sometimes and in our spiritual lives. So if you answered yes, or I should say if you answered no to one or both of those questions, there's a good chance that complacency has begun to slither its way into your spirit. Today we're going to look at a man that was in the Old Testament. And it would have been easy for him to be complacent. Things are just fine the way they are. I don't want to mess anything up. I'm satisfied with how things are. Okay, so this man's name is Nehemiah. He was not complacent. He was faithful. He practiced game-changing faithfulness. Game-changing faithfulness. So to help us understand just how Nehemiah came to where he was, when we pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles there now. I want to kind of bring us all, make sure we're all on the same page. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, my Old Testament history is kind of rusty, Dan. Or I've missed a few weeks of our game-changing series, and I'm not sure how this all fits together. So for the next few minutes, I'm going to just bring us up to speed. This is how Nehemiah finds himself in the situation he's in there in Nehemiah chapter 1. It all started back in Genesis chapter 12. God spoke to Abraham, and God told Abraham, I'm going to use you, Abraham, to build a great nation, and I am going to bless the world through that nation. Of course, the nation God was talking about was the nation of Israel. And the way he was going to bless the world through that nation was the birth of his son Jesus on earth. All right, So Jesus would grow up, live the perfect life as the son of God, and die on the cross for the sins of the world. That was the blessing God had in store, and it started with Abraham. Through a series of, series of events, through, uh, through many years, God did establish that nation of Israel. And the people of Israel were together, and they started looking at the other, at the other nations around them. And they noticed something. They noticed, they noticed they all had kings. And they thought, wow, we need a king. We need an earthly king just like everyone, just like everyone around us has. And God said, no, you don't need a king. I'm your king. You don't want an earthly king because that's going to lead you to have problems. I will be your king. And they said, no, 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 no. We want a king. So God gave them a king. And he gave them King Saul. King Saul was tall. He was good looking. On the outside, he looked like a million bucks. On the inside, he was spiritually bankrupt. He cared more about what people thought about him than he did serving God. God used King Saul to do some important things in the nation of Israel. But for the most part, King Saul's kingship was a disaster. After King Saul, it was King David. King David had his faults, no doubt about it. But the Bible describes King David as a man after God's own heart. David loved God very much. And God used David to really establish the nation of Israel, to bring it to power, and to make it really a, a, a very strong nation. Then after King David, there was King Solomon. King Solomon was King David's son, and the Bible describes Solomon as the wisest man who has ever lived. And so again, God really used Solomon and his, and his work as a king to just f- like further enable the nation of Israel, and to empower them, to give them wealth, to give them stability. 
But as wise as King Solomon was, man, he made some foolish choices. He decided that he was going to bring some of the women from the other nations to be his wives. God told them not to do that because they, because they worshiped false gods. And so these women came into his life. They turned his heart away from God. And God and, and King Solomon began to disobey God. So God spoke to Solomon. He said, Solomon, because you have chosen to disobey me, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from your children and your great-grandchildren. So after King Solomon's death, there was a civil war in the nation of Israel. And it split into two halves. All right, so there's the northern kingdom of Israel, which was comprised of ten tribes of the nation of Israel. And then there was the southern kingdom of Judah, which was comprised of two tribes. That was Benjamin and Judah. Now the northern kingdom of Israel, they didn't have a single good king. Not a single one. I mean, that's hard to do. And they did it. Not a single king was good. They were all evil and they were all wicked. And God kept telling them through prophets, hey guys, if you repent, I'm going to receive you back. I love you. And they chose not to. So God says, okay. So he sent the foreign empire of Assyria in. They conquered the northern kingdom. And from that point on, we really hear very little about the tribes of the northern kingdom and the rest of the Bible. Then there's this other tribe. They had some good kings, and they had a lot of bad kings. And they had a roller coaster ride with God. They were up and down and up and down. They would rebel, then they would repent, then God would restore them, and he would bless them, then they would rebel, he would repent, God would restore them and bless them. This went on for quite a while. Finally, God sends prophets to them and says, okay, guys, this has gone on long enough. Get your act together, or I'm going to get it together for you. Parents, have you ever said anything like that to your kids before? Change your attitude or I'm changing it for you. That was essentially what God told the southern tribes, the southern kingdom of Judah. So God said, okay, because I love you so much and because I want you to experience my fellowship and my blessing, I'm going to discipline you. And he disciplined them. And the way he did that was he brought in the foreign kingdom of of Babylon, all right? So now Babylon with King Nebuchadnezzar goes in and they conquer Syria and then they conquer the southern tribe of Israel, which was Judah. And over the span of 19 years and three different attacks, they go in and they start attacking Judah. Each time they attacked Judah and they conquered part of it, what they would do is they would take back the, the best and the brightest and the strongest and the wealthiest people and they would take them back to Babylon. And the third attack, all right, so the third attack was on the city of Jerusalem. And that took two years because they laid siege to it and they, and they starved them to death. And then they finally went inside the walls. And when they went inside the walls, they did a few things. First off, they tore down their temple. Second thing is they tore down all the walls around Jerusalem. And then they burned the city gates. I mean, they brought this city down. They made a mess of it. They made a mess of it. And then they took the people back those who were the best and the strongest, those who were old or weak or poor or struggling, they either killed them or they just left them behind. All right, so they went into captivity there in Babylon for 70 years, and that's where we meet Nehemiah. 70 years they were in captivity, and during that time, that's when Nehemiah was born. Okay, so he was born to, uh, uh, 
some parents who were Israelites. And Nehemiah had never gone to Jerusalem, but his parents taught him about God. And his parents taught him the Hebrew faith. His parents taught him about the Hebrew traditions. So he grew up loving God. And he also grew up like understanding the history and he knew how important Jerusalem was. God gave him a mission. God gave Josiah, I mean, God gave Nehemiah a very important mission. That mission was to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. To rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Friends, if you're here today, and if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God's given you a mission. He's given you a reason to wake up in the morning. He's given you a purpose. This is your mission. To lift up the name of Jesus and to glorify God every day with your life. To lift up the name of Jesus and to glorify God every day. That's your mission. Nehemiah was faithful in his mission. It would have been easy for him to be complacent, but he wasn't. What we're going to see today as we dig more deeply into God's word was that his faithfulness grew out of some qualities that he put into his life. So my desire this morning is that as we go through these qualities, that it will do two things. First off, that it's going to encourage you to be faithful in your God-given mission. And the second thing is that if you're looking at your life and you say, I don't have those qualities, well, maybe this... Right, so maybe this is the start of it today. All right. So let's dig into Nehemiah's life a little more deeply. And turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 1, if you haven't turned there already. And we're going to jump to the very last sentence in this chapter as we get started. It says, I was cupbearer to the king. I was cupbearer to the king. So what's a cupbearer do back in this day? All right. So his main job was to keep the king safe. He was to keep the king safe. The main way that he did that was to test all the food and to test all the wine and the stuff that the king would drink before the king would take it to make sure it wasn't poisoned. See, in this day, it was kind of, kind of dangerous to be the king. Because king, there were lots of people who wanted to kill the king or hurt the king or get rid of the king. And so it was a cupbearer's job to make sure that the king stayed safe. So the cupbearer needed to be brave, right? He needed to be strong. His life was on the line protecting the king. Something else about the cupbearer was he needed to be a person of very high character. The king was trusting his life with the cupbearer. So the king obviously had to trust this man. This man had to be a person of high integrity, high character. Something else about this man, he had to be strong, physically strong, because he was basically a bodyguard for the king. And then something else is, I believe that the cupbearer would spend a lot of time with the king and the queen during meals. So I think probably the cupbearer became a confidant, maybe like an unofficial advisor to the king. So in other words, Nehemiah, the cupbearer, he had the whole package. He was, I mean, he was brave, he was strong, he was courageous, he was wise, he was trustworthy. He had the whole package. He was a man's man. But more important than that, he was God's man. He loved God, and he was faithful to God. He was faithful to God. That's because he, he had some of these qualities in his life that his faithfulness would grow out of. So let's look at chapter 
You know what? I'm going to read the whole chapter of Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to ask that you follow along as I read. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon... I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So as we look at the first quality, I want us to go back to verse 3. It says to me, they said to this, or they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So you see what's going on here? All right, so here's Nehemiah. And he's getting a report back from his brother and some of the others. And they told him how things were going in Jerusalem, and they were not good. And when, and when Nehemiah heard the news, the Bible tells us, he sat down and wept. He sat down and wept because he cared. Nehemiah cared. He didn't have to care. Things were going great for Nehemiah. Look at his life. He was in the palace. He was rubbing shoulders with the king, the most powerful man in the world. I imagine he slept very comfortably every night. I think Nehemiah enjoyed great meals. It would have been very easy for Nehemiah to stand there with an apple in his hand. And he's listening to the report about Jerusalem. And to respond by going, That's too bad. Bummer. Man, I hope they get that figured out soon. Right? That could have been Nehemiah's response. He was comfortable. He was 800 miles away. He didn't. 
Because he cared. Certainly he cared about his fellow Israelites that were living in the city of Jerusalem or around the city of Jerusalem with no walls. That left them available to robbery, to murder, to bandits, to all kinds of stuff. But I'll tell you what. Nehemiah cared about something far greater than that. He cared about the reputation of his God. Nehemiah didn't want his God's name being drugged through the mud. And Nehemiah knew that the foreigners, as they were watching this whole thing go down in Israel, that they'd be like looking at the Israelites without any city walls and mocking them and mocking his God. And he didn't want that. I think the conversations of some of the foreigners around Jerusalem probably went something like this as they were talking to each other. So did you hear? Did you hear who's moving back into that pile of rocks they used to call Jerusalem? The Israelites are coming back. You should see them out there living among the weeds and the rocks. They look pathetic. They keep talking about this God of theirs, the gods of the heavens and the earth. Hello. More like the God of the weeds and the ridiculous. That's what he should be called. If this is how their God takes care of the people that worship him, I don't want anything to do with that God. Nehemiah wouldn't have anything to do with that. He wanted to honor and protect the name of his God because he cared. Friends, I got a question for you this morning. Do you care? Do you care? Do you have a burning concern? Certainly, do you care about your neighbors and your people that you live life with every day? About their spiritual health, their spiritual safety? But even more than that, do you care about the reputation of your Lord and Savior? Do you live your life in a way every day that lifts up the name of Jesus and glorifies God so that when the people that you meet each day, whether work or family or neighbors or whatever, when they meet you, how do they respond? After they get to know that you're a follower of Christ, do they go home thinking, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. Or they go home thinking, yeah, maybe I should check into this Jesus he keeps talking about. There seems to be something to it. Friends, do you care? If we are going to be faithful to God's mission, to lift up the name of Jesus, and to glorify God with our lives every day, we've got to care. We've got to care. Let's go on to point number two. Verse five. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants. Okay, let's stop there. This is the first prayer that we see Nehemiah praying. The first prayer. The book of Nehemiah is 13 chapters long. Nehemiah prays 10 times in 13 chapters. Now, some of them are very short prayers, and some of them are long prayers. In fact, the longest prayer that's recorded in the Bible 
is by Nehemiah in chapter 9, the longest prayer in the Bible. What we see as we read the story of Nehemiah is that he was a man of prayer. He was living out Paul's command to pray continuously long before Paul was even born. That was his life. He was a man of prayer. Nehemiah's faithfulness to God grew out of his prayer life. Friends, if we are going to be faithful in our God-given mission, we have got to be people of prayer. We've got to be people of prayer. I was in a small group last week. Sorry, I was in a life group last week. And the topic of prayer came up. And we were talking about how sometimes prayer can be tough. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's easy, right? Sometimes it's easy and I just find myself, I'm just praying along. It just seemed like it could go forever. And then sometimes it's just hard, right? And sometimes, I mean, we got a bunch of excuses, right? I don't have a place to myself where I can go pray. I can't keep my mind focused that long. I can't pray that long. I got ADD. Uh, I don't have anyone to pray with or whatever, right? Lots of types of prayer. But here's the biggie. Here's the biggie. And you know what it is before I even say it. I don't have time. I'm too busy. I'm too busy to pray. So there's a man named Martin Luther, and he led the Reformation. I would imagine Martin Luther was a busy guy with the Reformation and all. But he had a quote, and this was the quote. It's a very short quote. It says this. I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. He understood that the busier he got, the more he needed to pray. The busier he got, the more he needed to pray. Friends, we can find a lot of excuses. I challenge you. I'm challenging myself. Let's become people of prayer so we can be faithful to our God-given mission. Do whatever it takes. Wake up early. Stay up late. Pray over your lunch hour. Set your alarm. Find a prayer partner. Go for a walk. Whatever you need to do. Let's become people of prayer and stop making excuses. Right? Man, we could be faithful, but it's got to start with prayer. We can't be faithful if we don't care. We can't be faithful if we don't pray. Let's go on to the third one. Verse 8, it says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. You see what's going on here? Here's Nehemiah and he's praying. And what's he pray? He prays back one of God's promises that God gave to Moses and the Israelites a thousand years earlier. He's praying back one of God's promises. This is, Dan's para- this is Dan's paraphrased version of those verses. God, you told us that if we were unfaithful, you would scatter us throughout the world. 
But you also told us that if we repented and came back to you, you would restore us. You would restore our identity. You would restore your fellowship with us. God, you promised us you'd be faithful. And God, I'm claiming your promise today. I need your faithfulness. Nehemiah understood. His mission to rebuild the walls could not be done on his own strength, his own will, his own determination. It had to be grounded and rooted in the faithfulness of God. Friends, if you and I are going to live out our mission of lifting up the name of Jesus and glorifying God every day, we've got to understand it's not going to happen by our own will, our own strength, our own discipline. It can happen only because of God's faithfulness to us. I start, out this, this, I start out this message with that story about Josiah. I was talking to Josiah as he was riding up that, that hill, as he was pushing his bike up the hill. I'm like, Josiah, I'm going to help you. I'll be here with you. If you get too tired and you can't make it, I'll push you up the hill. If you start to fall, I'm going to catch you. So Josiah decided to accept that mission one day, to take his bike and actually ride it up the hill. He jumped on his bike and he, he was riding that bike, and he hit the incline, right? And he starts slowing down, right? He's got those little four-year-old legs pumping as fast as he can, man. He's got that determined look on his face. He's leaning over the bars to make him go faster, right? He's, he's working at it. He hits that incline and starts to slow down even more. And you know what happens to a bike when you kind of lose momentum, right? You start, you start going in and out. He's all over the sidewalk at this point. He's on the neighbor's grass. He's going, he's everywhere. On this, he's, he's all over the place. And, and his bike starts shaking and his handlebars are kind of going like this. And he's giving it all he's got. At some point, he basically comes to a standstill. So I go up to him and I grab the seat of his bike and I give him a push. And he goes a little bit further, right? Same thing happens. He goes up and starts getting a little wobbly. I go, I give him another push. He gets to the top of the hill. He makes it to the top of the hill. Within a few days, he's doing that trip all by himself, not even thinking about it, right? He accepted that mission to start with because he knew his dad would be faithful. He knew he didn't have the strength, the ability, the determination to make it up the hill on his own, but he knew his dad would be faithful. Friends, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking about your mission, I'm going to ask you, how are you doing? How are you doing lifting up the name of Jesus and honoring God with your life every day? Is it going great? I hope so. Maybe there's someone sitting here, though, and things are getting a little wobbly. Maybe you even come to a standstill. Perhaps you're even going backwards. I want to encourage you and remind you today, you have a heavenly Father who was 100% faithful. He is there with you the whole time. But here's where my bike illustration begins to break down. See, because I'm an earthly dad, and because I can't see tomorrow, because I'm not sovereign, I'm not all-knowing, I did everything I could to protect Josiah. I didn't want him to fall. I didn't want him to fall because I didn't know how serious the injuries could be, right? So I did everything I could to keep him safe. But friends, sometimes God, because he's sovereign, because he controls everything, sometimes he will let us fall. Let me explain. 
So last year I went to a Christian concert. It was a band, 10th Avenue North. In the middle of this concert, the, the singer for 10th Avenue North gave a message, and he said something I've never forgotten. In fact, I tell my, I tell my wife and my kids this periodically. He said this. Good dads have kids who have scars. And this is what he meant. Good dads are out playing with their kids. They're teaching them new skills. They're helping them grow and learn and develop. They're doing things like teaching them how to swing or ride a bike or play football or build something or whatever it may be. And sometimes during the course of that activity, the kid's going to fall. And he's going to get scratched. He may even get scarred. And the initial way to look at that is, man, that dad, he's a bad dad. He let his kid fall. Look, his kid's got a scar. What kind of dad is that? But that's the wrong way to look at it. The right way is, what a great dad. He was out teaching his kids, developing his kids, loving his kids. Sure, he fell. He got a scar. But man, what a good dad. The spiritual parallel to that is this. Our heavenly father as he grows us and develops us, as he teaches us, he's going to allow us to experience things in our life, good things and bad things, difficult things. I'll call them difficult instead of bad. And God will allow us to fall. But because he's sovereign, he knows how far to let us fall. An illustration of that is the Israelites they're in Judah. They were captured by the Babylonians. They were taken back to Babylon. In my opinion, I read that, that's a fall. That's a fall. And then as Nehemiah, as he took this group back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, they were constantly being attacked, threatened, mocked. People wanted to kill Nehemiah. They wanted to stop the work on the walls. In my mind, I read that, that's a fall. But God was faithful. He was there with them the whole time. Sure, they got some scars, but he proved himself faithful. Friends, as you and I, as Christ followers, if you come to that point where you are a Christ follower and you've given the Lord your life and asked for his forgiveness and invited him in and made him the Lord of your life, he did something special that day. He gave you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's with you. God's fellowship is with you through his Holy Spirit. And he's not leaving. He's with you. And as you seek to live out your mission, to glorify Jesus Christ and to glorify God every day, there's going to be some difficulties, no doubt about it. It may even seem like you're falling, but God is faithful. You keep your eyes fixed on him, you keep following him, he's going to be there. You're going to find yourself at the top of the hill. Not without some bumps and bruises, I'm sure, but God is faithful. Nehemiah understood that. His faithfulness to God grew out of God's faithfulness to him. Three qualities this morning, friends. Our faithfulness grows out of our care. Our faithfulness grows out of our prayer. Our faithfulness grows out of God's faithfulness to us. I'm going to close with this thought. 50,000 of the Israelites returned to Jerusalem. 50,000. 
Bible scholars tell us there was many more thousands who stayed in Persia. Many more thousands. Some of them stayed because they were too old, weak, sick, or whatever to make that long journey back. Many of them stayed because they were comfortable. Because they became complacent. Because they got jobs. And they had families. And they liked things the way they were. They were comfortable. But if you think about it, here they are. And they're living in a foreign land. They had the chance to go back to Jerusalem. They had a chance to have their identity restored as God's chosen people. They had the chance to go back and worship in the temple to their God. They had the chance to go back and be what they once were. God said, go back. And they said, nope, we're going to stay here. We're staying here because we're comfortable. And you think about what they're comfortable in. This is a foreign place. People worshiping foreign gods. Sinfulness all around them. And they said, nope, we're going to be comfortable right here. Friends, may we, as Christ followers, never be comfortable in this world. May we look around us and see the sinfulness that is all around us. May our hearts break. May we be greatly concerned. May we pray for our world. And may we be faithful in our calling. No matter if our neighbors say something's okay, the government says something okay, Hollywood says something's okay, may we know God's word and understand it's not okay. May we never be comfortable with the sin in this world. May we live by God's standards and be faithful to his calling. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask that you join me in prayer, please. Dear God, we love you so much. Man, thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you that we could call you our heavenly father today. God, thank you for giving us a purpose. Thank you for allowing us to get up each day with the purpose of lifting up the name of your son and glorifying you every day. God, help us be faithful. God, help us be faithful. God, we love you. We praise you. We adore you. May you be pleased with the lives of people who attend Great Oaks Community Church. May we go into this world to lift up the name of Jesus and glorify you. In the precious name of your son, we pray. Amen. Hey, if you haven't gotten into a small group, I'm going to ask that you check out a small group. That we, can, that we can continue to encourage each other in your walk with Christ.